closing the loop in international supply chains. Can this happen? What do we need for circular value chains? We will discuss which possible solutions exist. I'm Julia Hörnig, Assistant Professor at Erasmus School of Law, and today we ask, what is wrong with maritime trade? This sustainable law talk right from the center of trade, Rotterdam. Welcome to the seventh episode of this podcast, where we try to tackle patterns of trade which developed over centuries and discuss potential solutions. For our seventh episode, I'm more than happy to welcome our two guest speakers, Gregor Franzen and Jan Koller. Welcome. Gregor Franzen is active in environmental law and environmental economics, both in an advisory capacity and in litigation before administrative, civil and constitutional courts. In particular, he advises private and municipal companies as well as associations comprehensively on all waste management activities and types of facilities. He is also an expert in the area of water management, nuclear law, mining and public procurement. He is a regular speaker at relevant professional and continuing education events, is involved in several trade associations and regularly publishes in commentaries and professional journals. Jan Koller is group manager at the Fraunhofer Project Group Sustainable Manufacturing in Bayreuth, a Fraunhofer Institute for Manufacturing, Engineering and the Automation IPA branch. After his studies, he began his scientific career as research assistant and senior lecturer at the Chair of Manufacturing and Remanufacturing Technology at the University of Bayreuth in Germany. In his work, he focuses on circular economy with a special emphasis on remanufacturing. In national and international research and industry projects, he addresses the challenges of remanufacturing and develops efficient, innovative and sustainable solutions. The facts. The starting point for our discussion is resource scarcity. Resources, in particular those that are not renewable, are rare or will within the next decades become rare. Extraction itself is a major problem as it also causes emissions and leads to change of landscape and ecosystems. All of these aspects, in the end, facilitate climate change and need to be combated. Before we get into the discussion about what the options are on how to solve the issue, I would like to know, Jan, how did we end up being in this situation from a supply chain perspective? So the current economic and industrial system faces the challenge of overcoming the linear consumption system. This linearity is described as a take-make-dispose pattern and has been in place since the beginning of industrialization. New materials are extracted and deployed in manufacturing processes to create a product which is then sold to a customer who disposes it uh, after the useful life ends. The linear consumption economies are therefore a result of cheap and plentiful resources and resource supplies in the past. Therefore, linear processes usually lack awareness of environmental impacts and take-back strategies are underdeveloped. The way how supply chains were shaped in the past and still are is familiar to us. 
I mean, we all know we buy products and all of a sudden we don't like them anymore and that's why we dispose of them. And only on rare occasion do we think about an alternative. If we must move to another apartment, for instance, and need to get rid of our furniture, then the concept of uh, platforms like eBay come in handy. If you think of business models like Too Good To Go, then the financial aspect of cheaper food is relevant. So for all of you that don't know Good to Good To Go, is that's a platform where you can buy food that is supposed to be uh, disposed at the end of the day and you can buy it for a small amount of money just uh, because the stores would or the restaurants would uh, throw it away otherwise. So there is always this financial incentives and also sometimes convenience. So there are also some occasions where we as private individuals think about the usage of a product after its lifespan or individual use expires. Jan, what are the different approaches? Can you explain how thinking beyond can be professionalized, beyond eBay, for instance? Sure. So circular economy is more than recycling material. And in fact, many different strategies exist. There are different approaches to classify or categorize these strategies within a circular economy. And at a higher level, the Alan MacArthur Foundation differentiates between biological and technical cycles to close the loop, which can be visualized by the so-called butterfly diagram. Furthermore, the 10R framework categorizes three groups of R strategies. They are smarter product use and manufacturing, extend lifespan of products and its parts, and useful application of materials. Within these groups, 10 different strategies are described, like, uh, for example, repair or remanufacturing. Okay, that sounds really, really complicated, but it also sounds really promising. At least it's well thought through, but at the same time, very challenging to leave the path we are used to. Your research and specialization is about remanufacturing. What are the advantages, both from an environmental perspective and maybe also from a managerial perspective? Remanufacturing is, first of all, a standardized industrial process in which used or non-functional products or components are restored to the same or better condition than a new product. And therefore, remanufacturing closes product cycles and enables the reuse of used products and components at the end of the use phase while maintaining uh, or restoring the product design and the associated product properties. And this offers ecological, economic and also social advantages. And on the one hand, remanufacturing of old parts can significantly reduce material consumption and environmental impact. Studies show that remanufacturing can lead to a resource requirement of only 10% compared to new production, and hence by remanufacturing, up to 90% of energy and material can be returned into the product life cycle. This clearly distinguishes uh, remanufacturing from uh, the traditional material recycling, which ends with the recovery of material. And on the other hand, um, also costs can be reduced through retention of the product shape and the reduced use of materials as these costs can partially pass on to the end customer. 
The prices for remanufactured products are usually between 40 and 80 percent lower than those of equivalent new products. So great, but then there is also an economic incentive, which is really, really great. Uh, I can imagine that these processes are quite complex, and that's why I wonder which sectors uh, for or for which sectors will it become relevant. It is uh, already relevant in uh, sectors like automotive or the aviation industries. The, the concept there has been known and is established in, this, uh, in those sectors for years. And a wide variety of car components, for example, are remanufactured, including engines, turbochargers, starter motors, alternators, uh, brake calipers, and many more um, components. And due to the shift towards the electromobility, this will also include new components in the future, such as the high-voltage battery, for example. And in addition, the product spectrum is also being expanded uh, to include other components and other products. Um, for example, we are investigating the remanufacturing of washing machines in the EU project resource-efficient circular product service systems, uh, RESIPs. And we are looking there into ways to remanufacture uh, washing machines, but also in other projects, um, for example, electric bicycle motors. That is very, very interesting. Nice to hear. Um, so the spectrum is quite broad, which is good because we need it at a broad range, but all relates to areas of industry or precisely items that are rather technical, complicated. So how does repair or remanufacturing work? What are the steps of this procedure? So it's first of all important to distinguish clearly between repair and remanufacturing. Okay. Uh, why? Sorry for being so unprecise. Uh, so let me explain this. Um, during repair, only the cause of a defect is analyzed and the defective components are replaced just to restore the function of the product. Uh, however, such a repair is often not uh, economical and this is due, among other things, um, to the increasing number of variants, a lack of standardization of components, also special tools which are required in the workshop and, for example, um, for the disassembly or fault analysis which they are used and also the lack of availability of spare parts um, is a problem and the know-how uh, in the workshops. And furthermore, the warranty in uh, repair uh, just covers the replaced parts in contrast to a remanufacturing, which covers the whole remanufactured product. Okay, then you made us curious. What is remanufacturing then about precisely? The remanufacturing process uh, can be divided uh, into six main process steps. And first of all, the initial inspection takes place. So if necessary, the product is first classified in terms of manufacturer, model year, and so on. And an initial assessment is carried out uh, on a product level. And in the next step, the product is then disassembled in its parts or components. And this disassembly, um, of course, should be carried out as non-destructively as possible. Okay, and 
does this work out for all types of products or do we have to make a distinction? So I, I just heard, I mean, that's also a podcast that is related to shipping law. In shipping, for instance, it is a major issue that vessels are not designed in a way that they can be easily broken in different components so that this assembly is not possible. Um, so does it work for all types of goods? Yes, this is also an issue for remanufacturing. So it does not work for all products uh, to disassemble them. And it's a very big challenge, of course, um, as very few products are developed for a remanufacturing or designed for remanufacturing after their use phase. And for example, non-detachable connections, glued uh, components um, pose a major challenge for non-destructive disassembly. And broken parts, which are not uh, suitable for remanufacturing, are discarded at this stage. Okay, but discarded cannot be like the end of the story. There must be at least uh, attempts to recycle them. At least that's what I assume, just presuming that the design does not prevent remanufacturing. What be, would be the next steps? So um, after they are disassembled, um, they are cleaned mm -hmm. to remove uh, contaminants like dust, dirt, rust, uh, oil and other um, contaminants and after this the part is then checked uh, for its condition and can be divided into three uh, categories. So they are um, either reconditionable mm -hmm. um, to restore the function, they can be reusable without reconditioning or as you mentioned before if they are neither reusable or nor reconditionable those parts then of course go to the material recycling route. Okay at least there is hope. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and after this, um, the next step, the wearing parts, uh, such as screws or seals, are also replaced with new parts. So that's also to restore the um, original standard of the used parts and um, make sure that um, they are just like new products. Okay, great. And the last step, um, the remanufactured and new parts um, are then assembled into uh, like new products and for this purpose the components of various used products are recombined to remanufacture as many products as possible with as few spare parts uh, as possible. And finally each individual product is then uh, tested in a final function test. Yeah, that relates to a topic we will discuss later with regards to standards also. What are the standards for these uh, functional tests? Um, so this sounds very much straightforward and doable, of course, except for the very starting point, which is suitable for uh, the suitability for remanufacturing. But as always, if innovation makes progress, the law lags behind. Um, we see this in various areas, so for instance transport law, my area of expertise dated back to the last century. Do you experience this here as well from a practical point of view? Yeah, I think Europe is already taking a leading role on a global level. Um, if it comes to the introduction and implementation of a circular economy, uh, but of course there are still legislative obstacles and barriers. For example, if we talk about the definition of waste and the waste status of used products and furthermore globalization also plays an important role if it comes to remanufacturing 
um, since production, use of the products and remanufacturing of those products often take place in different uh, countries, uh, sometimes also different continents and the environmental law often has national differences which increase the uncertainty. True, true. Yeah, it's a, it's a global effort. It's an international effort and we, we also need to get the law in line. Thank you very much for the explanation. We will now uh, look into the legal issues we have to discuss. Thank you very much, Jan, for the explanation. The legal issues. So coming to the second part, as promised, we now discuss the law part. So Gregor, do we have a legal framework suitable for a circular economy? Very provocative yeah. for the question. <laughs> yes, um, well, I think we do already have a legal framework within the European Union that is already uh, focused on the circulation of materials, well, from resources to products, from products to waste, and most decisive, from waste to products again. Um, well, the Central Legal Act of the European Union in the field of waste law is the Waste Framework Directive. The core of this Waste Framework Directive is the so-called waste hierarchy. And by this concept, we can elaborate very um, detailed the um, priority order, which you actually have already discussed with uh, Jan in the part one. Uh, because this is a priority order for the different waste treatment measurements and the first level, so to say the best, is to prevent waste. So the first level of the waste hierarchy is the waste prevention, for instance, through the reuse of products and materials or through the preparation for their reuse without becoming them getting waste at any stage of the circular supply chain. This is actually... Uh, mostly um, covered by what Jan explained us by the remanufacturing concept. And, um, Great. So, so there we have already a match. Yes, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, on the second level of the waste hierarchy, um, uh, we have the so-called preparation for reuse. Here we talk already about waste materials. So if products or objects have become waste, because it was not possible or whatsoever to prevent becoming them waste. So if they have become waste uh, at the end of their use phase, they shall be prepared for reuse for the same purpose they have been originally produced and designed for by only means of checking, cleaning and repairing, no more. And um, so this is very similar actually to the uh, preparation for reuse of a non-waste by checking, cleaning and repairing. And uh, in practice, it's often not easy to distinguish whether you prepare for reuse a waste material or a non-waste material. But from a legal point of view, it's very uh, important to make this differentiation because it's uh, decisive for the application of waste law and if you are uh, the, um, the addressee of waste legal uh, obligations, it's very important to know. And uh, the reason why this differentiation is not easy in practice is that there are a lot of criteria uh, in order to decide whether you discard an object or material, which makes it waste, or whether you do not discard an object or material, 
and this is why it's so difficult. What about then the third, the third hierarchy? So that is the end of the hope for reuse. Yeah, exactly. So um, the preparation for reuse of a waste is only the first level of uh, the waste hierarchy concerning waste. The further level is the third level of the priority order. This is the recycling of waste material. And um, recycling means uh, normally that you treat an object or material more intensively, like only by checking, cleaning and repairing, for example, by dismantling, disassembling, shredding, melting and so on. So you way more intensively um, uh, treat the uh, waste material. And the, this is already the reason why the recycling is only on the third level of the waste hierarchy, because from um, a resource uh, perspective, um, the preparation for reuse only by checking, cleaning and repairing normally needs less energy and uh, yeah. consumes less resources in order to treat the waste. And recycling normally is more energy and resource consuming. And this is why recycling is only on the third level of the waste hierarchy. Okay. So if the legal framework is basically suitable for a circular uh, supply chain, so I mean, we, we detected already some similarities, um, why is it still so difficult to realize it in practice? I mean, you mentioned already the blurred line between waste and non-waste. Yeah. This is already a blurred line, like you said, and uh, there are other blurred lines as well. Um, for instance, the waste hierarchy priority order is not absolutely strict. In order to decide what is the um, um, suitable waste treatment measure in a single case, uh, you take the uh, waste hierarchy order as a kind of general rule and apply it on the single case by a number of uh, criteria. So, first of all, of course, if you decide whether there are different waste treatment uh, possibilities, first you decide or you have to assess well, what treatment is technical possible, which is um, economically feasible, and which is the best or at least better or equally good uh, as another waste treatment uh, option from an economic and you know, from an um, environmental uh, point of view and with regard to the human health. And these bunch of criteria that must be applied in a single case in order to decide what is the best waste treatment measurement according to the waste hierarchy and its criteria, that makes it so difficult to decide in a single case. And there is a saying in the waste treatment industry Waste always finds its way to the cheapest measurement. And this is <laughs> actually because the, um, the number of arguments you can find in each single case in order to uh, argue in favor of the cheapest waste treatment option, yeah. uh, this is what makes it so difficult. Uh, just by using the waste hierarchy. How can the situation be assessed with regards to the European single market? You said that it's not always clear. It depends on the single market. You mentioned economic aspects. You mentioned environmental aspects. But I can imagine that even within Europe, there are different standards. So it's how is the situation in the European single market? 
Yeah, well, of course, um, European-wide, we have different standards and a lot of producers already think about how to close their own material loop mm -hmm. within their own uh, product family. And uh, they often, in nearly all industries, many companies uh, work or um, doing, are doing business uh, European-wide in different member states. And uh, so they think about how to get to the um, materials uh, becoming waste from our own products we have put on the market to our consumers. And uh, so they try to collect waste materials in different member states and try to close the loop European-wide by centralizing their recycling activities. And unless the um, differentiation between different standards, they face another legal problem because uh, if you want to ship waste uh, materials cross-border, from one European member state to another, for instance, to a European central recycling uh, facility of a producer, you have to deal with the um, European Waste Shipment Directive. And uh, these procedures um, under this directive of the European Union always um, put a lot of bureaucracy and formalities uh, on the uh, producers and you have to deal with different national authorities with different views and approaches to waste law. And in the end, you face a lot of legal uncertainties and a lot of loss of time and uh, money, actually. So you are in the end punished for your goodwill. Yeah, <laughs> in, in, in especially if you try to um, manage waste material European-wide. You have uh, an, uh, an additional legal uncertainty and barrier. And um, I think nowadays there is a more and more common conviction that we need um, a change of this waste shipment directive in order to uh, facilitate, to circulate valuable waste materials within the European common market. But it's also kind of remarkable if we think of the internal market as an economic union, as it was, and it should have facilitated flow of material and capital and everything, and then they built such an obstacle for this. Yeah, I think the reason why it is that way is that the Waste Treatment Directive is an environmental legal act of the European Union, and this is actually not made for the European common market to uh, ease, yeah. make it okay. more easy, but to protect the environment and the human health. And so there is, a, from history, a very strong and very strict regulation on cross-border shipment of waste materials. And uh, mm -hmm. nowadays there is uh, the conviction more and more that uh, this environmental legal act of the European, of the European Union actually hinders yeah, the attempts of the producers and the waste treatment companies to circulate valuable materials within the common market. Seems like this, yes, definitely. Uh, one thing I was wondering uh, was that you mentioned there is a plural line between waste and end of waste status. What is the function of this concept, end of waste? Um, well, actually, in order to circulate materials uh, that have become waste uh, in order to create new products and goods, actually, you do not really necessarily need the end of waste status concept. 
uh, because from a waste legal perspective, you are allowed to recover waste materials in whatever um, products, goods and functions, whatever you want. Uh, but normally many producers do not like to uh, directly use waste materials coming from whatever uh, sources out there in the common market in order to produce new products uh, because there are doubts about the qualities and uh, maybe some uh, harmful substances rests in the uh, material flows and uh, so uh, the end of waste status is a very useful concept in order to show to the market that a waste has been treated in ways that it is no longer waste, that there is no um, harmful um, effect uh, that must to be feared from it. And in the way to say it is actually the documentation uh, for the waste treatment company or what, whoever has done it, that uh, the waste recovery or waste recycling operation was finally successful and that we are talking about a material which is, from a quality uh, point of view, as good as a raw material, as a primary material. Okay. And by uh, reaching the end of waste status, you can show to the market um, that you have reached a quality that no doubts are justified about the quality of the material. That is great. That's the hope. But I can imagine that given the differences between the member states, that even there we have a problem. Yeah, actually, it's the same again, like with the uh, waste hierarchy priority order, because the end of waste status is a very abstract concept. Uh, you must apply a lot of um, criteria in order to decide whether a waste has been treated in a way that it has reached the uh, end of waste status. And what we need here is actually uh, a lot of regulation by the European legislator or by the national legislator in the member states in order to specify the end of waste status criteria in a more detailed way so that the um, waste treatment companies, the waste authorities can decide clearer and without uh, legal uncertainties whether you have reached with a certain waste the end of waste status or not. And on a European level, we have only three very special end of waste status acts uh, which specify this criteria. and. Uh, in all the rest of the um, material flows, you just operate with a very abstract end-of-waste status concept set out by the Waste uh, Framework Directive. And this is why it's often so disputed in a single case between uh, waste treatment companies, producers, and waste authorities of the member states, whether a certain waste has been treated in a way so that it has reached the end-of-waste status. And what we need here is further and more detailed legislation on the end-of-waste status. Thank you very much. I think that pretty much concludes it. So we detected obstacles for our third part to be discussed. And uh, we heard a lot about the uh, legal side. Thank you very much for this part. And now we are looking forward to the third part. The Outlook. So we have had a look 
at the legal status quo and we discussed what the possibilities are right now with regards to repair and remanufacturing. So we need to distinguish this. That's what we learned already in the first part. Um, now we would like to combine the legal status quo and the innovations that exist for circular economy. The law seems to be an obstacle rather than a driver. So we talked about bureaucracy, we talked about end of waste status and waste status itself and the waste hierarchy and the unpredictable interpretation in some cases. Jan, what needs to be improved taking the practical standpoint for us? Yes, mentioned at the start, uh, we are just at the beginning of the transformation to a circular economy and to close the loop uh, different process steps such as the collection, reverse logistics and remanufacturing of the used products are necessary and this um, therefore leads to an increased planning effort and therefore rising uncertainty which seems not attractive for some companies at the first glance of course. And however, as long as the emissions of a product are not reflected in the price, for example, through a CO2 taxation, the linear business models will be attractive for many companies. And also other financial incentives, uh, such as a reduction of the um, value-added tax on end-of-life activities, uh, such as remanufacturing, or repair could uh, also encourage both small and established uh, players in the market to adopt uh, circular business models. And furthermore, from my point of view, the reuse of a product or the uh, preparation for reuse as described in the waste uh, hierarchy explained by Gregor is often not included in the legislative frameworks. Uh, for example, if you look at the batteries directive of the EU. Okay, uh, th this is astonishing. I mean, is manufacturing not included in recycling targets? Um, I know that there are a lot of business models specialized in remanufacturing. I mean, you are working with them. And it is surprising that this entire sector is apparently missed or underrepresented. And maybe it also has to do with the fact what Gregor mentioned, that the law that exists is more environmentally focused and not focused on the business side it may entail. Um, so what is your opinion on this, Jan? So as mentioned, um, this is currently the case, uh, for example, for the high voltage batteries for electric cars in specific. And here the European Union already specifies collection rates and also recycling efficiencies. Uh, however, those are only aimed um, to recover the material um, of the uh, batteries. And furthermore, these recycling efficiencies only refer to the mass of the raw materials in the battery system, including uh, also the housing, for example. Okay, so uh, Gregor, from a legal point of view, um Where do you see for a room for improvement and what do you think are the reasons for this, uh, for these vague recycling targets, for instance, or is the European Court of Justice already on a better way? So do we have hope that it is also a business orientated environmental law in the future? Yeah, I think there is a lot of reason for hope. Um, I think it's rather less the European Court of Justice, which makes hope, because as every court, 
this court is restricted to the decision and judgments of uh, individual cases. True. And uh, if there is no individual case to be decided by the European Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice has no role to play. And, uh, of course, uh, some judgments have consequences beyond the individual case and the parties of the case. Um, but in the end, uh, whether the European Court of Justice has to decide a case or not uh, depends very much on the uh, European Commission, because it is the European Commission to decide uh, to bring action against member states, uh, whether um, the member states may have uh, infringed the European contracts in uh, environmental matters. And on the other hand, it's the national courts who have to decide in their national uh, individual cases whether there is uh, some question to uh, ask the European Court of Justice uh, about. And uh, if the European Commission does not bring action against member states and if national courts do not ask the European Court of Justice for a decision, the European Court of Justice has uh, no influence on the environmental law. So, uh, but um, just just mm -hmm. out of curiosity, I mean, uh, from from your experience, um, so I can imagine that within the European Commission and within the or also first international authorities, it's usually the environmental department that deals with it, and not experts that also see like the value for business opportunities, right? Yes, I would agree. And um, uh, the European Commission is, uh, well, the most important uh, um, influence the European Commission can take on the circular economy is their right of initiative of uh, legal procedures within the uh, European um, Union. And um, so I think the um, the thing that we can have very much hope for the circular economy in the future is the um, uh, the policy papers of the European Commission published in the recent two or three years. For instance, yeah. the new circular economy action plan, where so, the yes. European Commission has described very many measurements, um, legal measurements, they want to take in order to improve the circularity of the European um, economy. And, yeah, um, if, if I may, if the audience want to look it up, because it's not that extensive, but it has a lot of good content. It's mm -hmm. COM 98-2020. It's, it's really a good read. So for also for inspiration for every one of you. Sorry. Yes, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> yeah, just to make one more remark to uh, recycling quotas, for instance, in new products. On the one hand, it's a very good measurement in order to improve the uh, use of former waste materials for the production of new products. On the other hand, uh, the producers have a strong incentive not to use non-waste materials, but to use waste materials in order to fill, fulfill the obligations under this recycling quota. So if you talk, for instance, about a circular good or material, which can be circulated in a way that it becomes no waste. You can use this material in order to produce a new product, but if you take this material, you cannot count on it 
by uh, fulfilling the recycling quota for your products. So uh, recycling quotas have, on the other hand, a very strong incentive on the uh, producers to make materials to waste in order to say they take these waste materials uh, for recycling measurements in order to fulfill the recycling quotas. So uh, there is a bias between waste prevention measures mm -hmm. and recycling quotas. Oh, that's really, really interesting. And then, of course, it goes hand in hand with the ambiguity of, of the terms <laughs> again. So yes, when exactly. it comes to a legal dispute. Yeah. So for instance, if a producer uh, has the possibility to argue on the one hand side, uh, for the remanufacturing of a non-waste used mm -hmm. product yeah, yeah. Uh, and on the other hand uh, to make it to waste material to put it into a recycling uh, measurement in order to get some recyclate from uh, the treatment operation in order to fulfill the recycling quota it can have a strong incentive to make a non-waste to a waste in order to fulfill the recycling quota. And so recycling quotas may have the impact that we have more waste than before. Yes, and also from an from a technical point of view, uh, a lot of value is lost then uh, in this uh, recycling process, uh, which could be restored by remanufacturing, for example. Okay, and how mm. can we solve this? I mean, given this ambiguity, how can we provide more legal uh, guidance uh, for private parties? Harsh legislation or what mm. would it be? Yeah, at least more detailed legislation mm -hmm. because these uh, very abstract concepts of the waste hierarchy, of the end of waste status, of recycling is definitely not enough um, to improve the circularity of the European economy. Um, and it's very important, I think, that the European legislator um, thinks in the, well, priority order of the waste hierarchy himself as well. So the most important legislation we need is legislation to prevent valuable goods that have been used and that have come to the end of the use phase to prevent getting them waste. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is actually the most important, what we need, the waste prevention legislation. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is why we need legislation on the durability, for instance, and repairability of uh, products that have been used. Here we need standards. I totally agree with uh, Jan. And we need, um, as an expression of the extended producer responsibility, more specific regulation on the design for circularity and recyclability of products. So the legislator must think from the uh, starting point, the production process, and not from the end, the waste industry. Yeah, true. Uh, just as an example, in Germany now we have the durability and sales law included, but what durability means is not clear. And that, of yeah. course, brings us to the standards back. And uh, Jan, you mentioned briefly these standards. Um, which standards are you referring to? Do they exist already? What are their names? Maybe for the audience to explain this. Yeah, at the moment, there's a lack of uh, standards, in my point of view, that uh, define and benchmark the remanufacturing process, establish specifications that distinguish remanufacturing also from other practices and um, address the impact of remanufacturing processes uh, on product safety. 
So in my opinion, the development of a standard to define uh, common understanding of remanufacturing processes to which remanufacturers can uh, refer and commit to is therefore necessary. And uh, compliance with those um, then defined requirements can uh, lead to a certification, for example, of a remanufacturing company and therefore um, comparable to ISO 9001, for example, on quality management systems, requirements could be set for the organization and not the result. So that basically matches with what you said, Gregor, already, that we have to start thinking from the start of the production circle or from the life circle of a product and not from the end of the circle. We had this, then coming back to the ship recycling again, there is also, it's about the ship design, whether we can use uh, the parts again. It's also about the design of of a plastic bottle, whether we can use it again. If it has combined material, then it's the end of the story already at the beginning. So I understand that from a legal perspective, harmonization makes sense as long as they are combined with standards. Yeah, well, from a legal point of view, I think the need of more standardization uh, is inevitable because um, many details we need to the requirements on circular goods and products um, cannot be regulated by laws. Yeah. I mean, laws can contain the basic principles. It can detail these principles uh, to some extent, but the um, numerous um, details in, in a technical uh, aspect uh, that cannot be set out by sure. uh, laws and legislators. Here we need technical standardization organizations uh, which uh, can um, use all the technical expertise of the different sectors and branches. And um, under the legal framework, we definitely need more standardization in a technical uh, point of view. And um, within our common European market, of course, we need European harmonized standards yeah. um, in order to prevent distortions of competition. Mm -hmm. And um, we know from our clients that uh, harmonized standards European-wide create more confidence among producers, consumers yeah. and authorities that the goods or waste materials or recyclates or whatever we are talking about, that these materials and objects um, have the same qualities throughout Europe. Sure. And um, so then it is easier to circulate these goods and objects um, if you can prove that they um, oblige to a certain standards harmonized within the European common market. Yeah, it, it even sounds a bit like a pledge for, for a new fundamental freedom within the European Union. <laughs> so freedom for recirculization, maybe. Just imagine we had the perfect situation with regards to the harmonization that still leaves us at least with one practical issue. And Jan, you referred to this practical issue, and that is the unsustainable design of products. How can this be resolved? Um, there I agree with what Gregor said before, that companies must be convinced to invest in high quality and reusable and, for example, modular products. Yeah. And the moment the various and often contradictory goals in the design of a product, in the construction of products, 
are well known, but these are often resolved to the disadvantage of uh, sustainability. Yeah. And uh, coming back to the um, battery systems I mentioned before, um, the, at the moment they are specifically optimized with a focus on performance, energy density and costs. And um, there, for example, together with the chair manufacturing and remanufacturing technology of the University of Bayreuth, we are investigating um, in a research project what a future battery system could look like in order to disassemble and remanufacture it with as little effort and as non-destructively as possible. Great. These kind of researches are so important for the progress, as well as, of course, also the legal improvement is. Anything to add from your perspective? Yes, I think um, also the classic sale of products um, mm -hmm. leads to an issue that the manufacturer is completely losing control over the product. And the user must therefore first be encouraged to return the product with an incentive uh, scheme. And this makes it also difficult to predict the time, the quantity and also the condition of a returned products. And here, um, digitalization and condition monitoring, for example, in combination with um, product service systems could provide a, pos a potential solution. Thank you very much. So I think uh, we are on a good way. There is still some work, a lot of work to do for both the practical side and the legal side. Thank you very much, both of you, for this interesting discussion. And for the audience, I hope you liked our discussion. And um, yeah, stay tuned and um, stay curious. Until next time. Bye bye.